I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst who works with people internationally, and this is episode 251 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guests today are Dr. Isabel Miller and Dwayne Monroe. They're here to talk about the psychoanalysis of AI Doomerism. You can support Rendering Unconscious Podcast by visiting our Patreon, where we do post exclusive content every week. Visit patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. As with most episodes of Rendering Unconscious Podcast, there is a video of this up at YouTube. Just visit Trapar Films' YouTube page, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube, or visit Rendering Unconscious Podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. Thanks, um, everybody, for agreeing to join me on Vanessa's uh, podcast. Um, and the reason I, I thought this was an important topic is because uh, in recent months, we have noticed um, on social media and in mainstream media, <clears throat> pardon me, and in other outlets, a, um, an acceleration of the rhetoric around so-called AI. And it has gone from AI is going to take our jobs to AI is going to kill us. And so, which is a, in, in a, the speed at which we have gone from, we'll have self-driving cars to the self-driving cars are going to blow us up or murder us or launch nuclear missiles, whatever they're going to do. And I'll get to that in a minute. Like the, the, uh, the imprecision of, of these, these, these murder scenarios, these civilizational, you know, uh, destruction scenarios. Um, I was astounded by the speed at which this, this has occurred. Um, and I, you know, I've been in technology for decades, and although it's a truism that, you know, the field moves quickly, the rhetoric around the field had stayed pretty steady state, pardon me, um, for a long time. You had companies like, say, Cisco making network equipment, Microsoft doing their productivity suite, um, you know, um, various other companies. IBM, of course, has been like the, um, the old man of the industry for a long time. Um, and so they were always promising something new, like when companies like Apple and so forth came along. I don't know why I started coughing. The moment I started talking, <laughs> you know, they promised new things, um, the iPhone and so forth. All those things seem pretty new. Um, so there was a, a burn rate or a churn rate of supposed newness. But the, the messaging was always uh, a promise of some sort, right? Like, we're going to give you something. Um, your life will be better. Everything will be fantastic for you. And then in recent months, certainly starting in May of this year, uh, this turned, uh, interestingly. And in fact, um, in May, there was a, a, an open letter signed by a number of AI luminaries. And what I'd like to do now is read uh, a bit of an excerpt from the New York Times article um, about this um, letter. Um, and this is from a New York Times article from uh, May 30th of this year. And the, and the title of the article is um, um, AI um, Threat and Warning. So just the first two paragraphs, they're, they're pretty brief. 
So a group of industry leaders warned on Tuesday that the artificial intelligence technology they were building might one day pose an existential threat to humanity and should be considered a societal risk on a par with pandemics and nuclear wars. I'll just pause there for a moment because when I first read that and I first heard people saying that, I I think I spat out my martini. <laughs> and now I'll go on. <clears throat> Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI, this is still from the article, um, should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war, reads a one-sentence statement released by the Center for AI Safety, a nonprofit organization. The open letter was signed by more than 350 executives, researchers, and engineers working in AI. So when I first encountered this only a few months ago, um, it kind of got me thinking that something new was happening in the space of rhetoric around AI. Because um, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of promise was being removed or replaced, I should say, with the idea of threat, which is which is quite extraordinary, really, for an industry. I mean, imagine Ford Motor Company saying, you know, our cars are so fantastic and sporty that they will probably kill you. <laughs> Can you imagine like the ad campaign for that, like a car careening off the road or something like, and buy a Ford. Like no one would would uh, would go for that, obviously. And so the 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 strangeness of it really struck me. But also, there's another aspect of this. Um, it's very masculinist, by which I mean there's a, lots of men pushing this. Just today on Twitter, Dr. Timnit Gebru, who you um, some listeners may know and you may know, uh, she was a Google researcher, AI researcher, um, quite renowned, who was fired from Google for co-authoring a paper that challenged Google's uh, use of large language models, which is like the most um, famous or infamous technology stack in use right now. The Stochastic Parrots paper um, with Emily Bender and other um, uh, researchers. Um, and now she's with the, um, the Distributed AI Research Institute. I watched the thread that Dr. Gebru participated in, in which there were just men attacking her for challenging their idea that um, AI posed an existential threat. And the way that they challenged her was in the most condescending and misogynist manner. I mean, Dr. Gebru is, is a celebrated researcher. Um, and some of these men, <laughs> let's just say they're not. <laughs> like they're the, the exact opposite of that. They don't have any expertise. They're simply men just spouting off. And, and, and now there's a cottage industry of men, you know, declaring who have made themselves um, famous within, you know, their circles and are getting speaking engagements and book uh, deals and so forth, talking about so-called existential risk. Now, my analysis of this at the material level is that the industry is out of tricks. How many more smartphone uh, variations can they do? Self-driving cars do not work. Um, the, the trucking industry will not be upended by robot trucks and so forth and so on. So many of the things that they have promised to us are not going to happen. And so my, my, my assessment of this is that they've turned to this darkness, so to speak, to take a page from the book of the, of the US defense industry. 
Raytheon and Lockheed for decades have made their money by talking about destruction and threat. You must spend billions on an F-35 fighter because China's going to kill us. You must, you know, buy that you might, you, we're going to develop this nuclear missile because Russia's going to destroy us and so on. And so it, it struck me that this, this was there from a business perspective, this was the reason. But the reason why I, uh, Vanessa, I also um, suggested uh, inviting Isabel is because that's true on one level, the level of business materiality. But there's, there must be something else happening here that is driving this, as I say, masculinist uh, um, obsession with destruction and death coming from uh, devices, number one, that have that cannot do this, like it's just a lie. Um, but there are people who believe this. And I'm curious about uh, your thoughts, Isabel, about what may be happening. Well, I think your assessment of it is spot on i mean there's 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 no question that it is um a a tactical move and a and you know the short answer is capitalism of course but you know it becomes a moment where it it's it's more cost effective to make this into a threat as opposed to a potential benefit and all of the things that they can now start doing to to make us feel that we need them even more um, because not only are they the people in possession of all of this amazing technology and 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 um, superhuman forms of intelligence that we mere mortals don't understand, but not only that, they have the potential and the capacity to stop it if it gets out of hand, and therefore mm -hmm. even more reason why they should have more power and be listened to even more in their sort of megalomaniac claims and hubristic fantasies about what may or may not happen. So, I mean, that that kind of idea is 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 a sort of trope that's always been um, in in any sort of business minded, um, in, you know, in, in all industries. It's, that's that's basically how you sort of centralize power, isn't it? Is just to keep um, keep all the secrets to yourself. But I think it's really striking that um, you know this idea of the apocalyptic fears is only just coming out now because you know when I wrote. The, the psychoanalysis of AI two two three years ago even because it was before before it actually was published I, you know it took a while to be published so it was already to me who's not somebody who works in artificial intelligence or even mm -hmm. the tech industry very clear that these sorts of problems were going to come up very soon and it was the sort of thing that was just so waiting to happen because of the um, ridiculous masculinist ideologies that are sort of the infrastructure. Um, underneath this, that that at some point it's going to tip over into hysteria and fear mongering, and all of these sci-fi fantasies are going to become sci-fi nightmares, which they already were starting to be anyway. Um, but of course, now that they're more sort of um, coming into the public domain, and um, everyday people can see and tangibly uh, feel the effects of the technology it seems to me to be a very smart move to start shifting the discourse towards, uh-oh, what do we do? Um, let's kind of halt this a little, guys. Let's slow this down because it's it's scary. They already knew, you know, it's not... How can it be a surprise to them? It's not a surprise to us that this kind of technology has all these dangerous potentials. Yeah. Obviously it does. Obviously it does. So, it, you know, it seems to be a very clever sleight of hand. But, you know, more than anything, and as, as people like um, Timnit and... Um, Emil, is it Emil or Emily? Um, Emily. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they've they've said you know clearly um, this this uh, is a is a very good way of hiding the obvious fact that these problems are already here. You know this this exploitation, this yeah. this these types of um, apocalyptic visions and the inequality that may result we already live through and we already experience in our current situation. So um, it's it's such a fallacy to imagine that um, this is a future problem. And, you know, I, I really like the the way that um, Tim Nick-Gebru does give the sort of genealogy of, of mm-hmm. um, eugenics uh, yes. as, as a sort of prime building block of all of these, as as they called the Tesgriel bundle that they coined this acronym to, to sum up all the different approaches that are currently screaming about about um, general artificial general intelligence, because it really does um, spell out in a very clear ways uh, how the investment in artificial intelligence and the fantasy of the singularity is very closely tied to eugenicist mm-hmm. fascist ideas, and, and it's so clear. I mean, it's obvious. So I, I think that the the, the fact that, that she's being um, attacked um, in such a uh, sexist and I'm sure racist way as well yes. is completely um, in line with exactly the sorts of people that she's attacking who are holding on to these very, very pernicious ideas and who all happen to be white middle-aged men. I mean, it's interesting, yes. I'm surprised. Yes, know? and, and I, the tone of their um, pushback um is all is almost how dare you yeah uh, how dare you question you know the genius of uh, whatever rando and some of these individuals who are being lauded do in fact work in the industry which doesn't mean they can't be in error or have incentives incentive structures that steer them in one direction or another or as i would say you know the material conditions lead them in in in, in a certain direction hmm. um as marx would advise us to always keep in mind and um but the tone is quite interesting because it's not a tone of colleague disagreeing. Yeah, it's it's a tone of a yeah, of a lord talking to a serf, mm. right? Mm. Uh, d- despite the fact that you know the person that they're attempting to speak down to, in most instances, has possesses superior knowledge, and <clears throat> is also talking about things that are act- as you say are actually happening. Just today, I read a story about the NHS in the UK devoting 21 million pounds to so-called AI diagnosis. And if you know the industry, you know that what that really translates into are sorting mechanisms for getting people out of hospital faster Mm. to save money. Like it's never, I'm going to die, the machine can diagnose because machines cannot diagnose. Software cannot diagnose. It can find, find patterns that may help an actual physician, an actual nurse, an actual practitioner, an oncologist and so forth. But there's no diagnosis without cognition. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what AI is great at, what, what algorithms are fantastic at, is placing things into sorting columns. And so then decision makers within the NHS can say, well, you've been in hospital for too long, or you know, based upon the pattern of your illness, they can override the decision of physicians and other healthcare professionals. And this is what, I, this is what we see happening <clears throat> and I th- and then what uh, uh, Dr. Gebru and others are emphasizing is, as you said, these are the actual harms of these systems, not that they will achieve some kind of super intelligence and then decide to kill us. And that's the other thing that fascinates me. 
Uh, you know, years ago when, when I was young, I read, I had the privilege of reading, being exposed to the work of the Polish science fiction author, Stanislaw Lem. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a, um, a short story that I, I often reference called Gollum XIV, and, um, which is about a supercomputer developed by um, the U.S. military. And it's um, inaugural and also final address because it only talks to human beings one time. And in the address, which Lem is a brilliant uh, writer, and so the address is, is quite nice, the computer kind of goes through the history of humanity, you know, from mm. trees and so forth. And, and then and there's a line in there that I'm, I'm going to paraphrase in which um, you can feel the wind, but I only calculate the wind. And this is a gulf between us, right? Mm -hmm. And so for that very reason, you know, we are not, we cannot talk to each other. And Lem, of course, being, you know, a very learned and interesting person, um, his imagining of an, a truly thinking machine was of this device that, when it achieved cognition, recognized itself as other, like a genuine other. Mm -hmm. But what our current luminaries talk about are machines that not only are exactly like us, but only have our most terrible tendencies. They immediately leap to the machines that are going to kill us. And of course, when you would say, even if you could develop a thinking machine, why would it want to kill us? <laughs> what is the reason? Is it because you want to kill us? Yeah. <laughs> and you're projecting it's this projection, onto the machine? Yeah. <laughs> You know, and so I, I'm curious from a psychoanalytic point of view, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. Well, I think, first of all, it's it's what's so interesting about these, um, all of these groups, um, and, and I think it's a useful acronym, actually, the Tesquerel thing, because it kind of gives a an idea of all the different um, sort of inter interrelated ways mm -hmm. of fantasizing about AI. So the transhumanism, expropriationism, singularitarianism, cosmism, rationalism, effective altruism, and long-termism they put together. And they all kind of share various um, ways of fantasizing about um, the future. But this, this kind of, obviously it's a combination of fantasies about human greatness, a combination of the completely ridiculous idea of a disembodied intelligence which as soon as you start talking psychoanalytically completely falls by the wayside uh the idea of um the supposed moment at which the 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 sort of crossing of the rubicon in the singularitarian idea of passing over into this different stage of, of sort of rupture of human civilization and then of course the idea of the, the sort of surpassing the human body and going in literally into the cosmos and and sort of becoming like a global singularity, a sort of uh, uh, astronomical brain or whatever. And then this kind of even, I think, more sinister is this sort of effective altruist and long-termist idea of, okay, so it's possible that there could be in the future, if we, we, we follow this logic to its zenith, then potentially there are these, uh, there is this sort of um, astronomical quantity of human beings living digital human beings to the 10 to the power of 58 or whatever yes, yes. in the known universe in the accessible universe and we are morally obliged as effective altruists to achieve their um thriving and 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 because that would be the most amount of value and so we have to do something to, in order to achieve this amount of value because if we don't it's ethically wrong which is very similar, and it's exactly the same logic as the whole Rocco's Basilisk um, yes. apocalypse scenario. Yes. 
um, that, that I'm sure people have heard of. And and it's so funny because it's so like there's so many um, solecisms, there's so many problems with the the, the way that 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 it, idea is articulated because you're you're imagining scenarios that don't make any sense <laughs> for a start, and you know fantasizing about, for example, this just on the sheer basis of thinking about an AGI as if it were the same as an embodied human subject, i.e., one person thinking thoughts because. You know, we have this idea of the, the 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 human genius. The human genius is capable of doing great things, which yes, is, is true. But then we kind of then swap sw- swap when we're talking about AI to the AI being this idea of a human ge- genius that is just this one brain that can then create amazing things. That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that involves so many problems already. But but one of the big sort of psychoanalytic um, ideas that I think is just obviously missing here is the body and this idea of the body as um, a instrument of failure. And it's an instrument of failure that is necessary for intelligence. And this is the primary example that I always come back to in talking about the psychoanalysis of AI, because if you don't have a concept of the body and the concept of drive and failure, you don't understand human thought and you're going to get it wrong when you're trying to compare human and artificial intelligence. And I think one of a really nice um, kind of metaphor for thinking about this um, that kind of shows the fallacy of of these fantasies of the the most amazing human being that you can imagine or the, the most uh, intelligent you can imagine or most genius is to think about music and um, you know you, you can't imagine like oh better music than you've ever heard can you like we already have musical geniuses. I can't imagine oh a better Mozart, a better Beethoven, a better Bach. Do you know what I mean? So, right. and I, I have a friend who's a classical musician, and he said something very interesting about like what instruments are. And he said, well, you know, instruments are actually um, things that interrupt the body and and uh, as a, as as sort of like make the body fail in different ways. Mm. They're not augmenting the body in some way. They are yeah. in some ways, but in other ways, they're interrupting drives of the body, and so. This genius of a musician, for example, is a product of failure. And, and I think that that's a really nice way to just show how these fantasies of, of human greatness are all like wrong footed from the it's, beginning. It's, it's astounding. You know, I'm, I'm really happy you said that about failure um, because I was raised not only, um, you know, at the level of family, but at the level of becoming a technologist to understand failure as a part of learning right that like how do humans learn well by failing now ideally your failure doesn't cost you your life or limb and you know you can recover and do better but that there's an iterative process as you're interacting with the world right and because the world is too complex i think um, from a friend of mine, um, well, actually, Charlie Roberts, who you know, mm-hmm. um, he talks about Sartre's con- uh, concept of the world being too much, too much for us. And I, the moment you say that, it's like, yes, of course it is. I mean, um, uh, I, I recall a moment when I was um, a child uh, camping and the camp counselor took us on um, a, uh, a tour to um, the top of a mountain that was in, in the, the caldera of an ancient volcano. And uh, and he said, look up. And he was he was an, an astrophysicist, by the way. Mm-hmm. And in addition to being a camp counselor for for uh, children, 
And he began to describe to us what we were seeing, which was the first time I had seen it being a boy growing up in the city, which was the spiral arm of the Milky Way. Um, and he's describing to us how you're looking, you know, you're looking, you know, out, out at, at our galaxy. We are in this galaxy. And here, and you could all, and the light was so clear that you could see, you know, the dark clouds, um, how many, how many billions and billions of miles away, light years away. My, my, of course, I'm a child, so my, I'm full of wonder. And, um, but that was too much, yes, because, you know, this is just a portion of the universe. Um, and, and it's only the portion of the island of, um, that we happen to be in that's too big even for us, even, even with our science, to help us understand some portions of it. What these individual, individuals are doing that offends me deeply is they are denying that. They are denying that by saying that they've racked some servers in the data center this is why I just want to slap them around. <clears throat> they have racked some servers in a data center and they're running some software on it and therefore they have mastered the universe. Yeah. And now they're trying to colonize for capitalist reasons, but also I think because they are, um, well, I'll just say it, they're Philistines, mm -hmm. um, art um, and, and music as well. And what's interesting about the generative uh, systems that use you know, our works, the works of artists, our text and our visual arts and our music to, to generate synthetic copies is that now um, there's word in research circles that because there's so much of this, this uh, generated material out and the, the systems continue to siphon from the internet, the systems are now siphoning their own output, therefore degrading the newer, uh, uh, the newer outputs because you need actual human creativity mm -hmm. to even have something to copy. And so as they begin to iterate on airsats or synthetic copies, that the, the actual quality of the, of the outputs are, are becoming less and less. And, this, and that Microsoft is a fascinating article that I'll, I'll be talking about at some point. Um, um, I'll be writing about, I should say, for my blog. Microsoft researchers, because Microsoft is, I mean, people underestimate what they know about these things and they, they, know, you know, they know what's going on. They know this is happening, but they don't care because their goal is to extract as much profit before it collapses, which makes them in a way like Exxon. Exxon knows that, you know, um, CO2s will burn the earth, but they're like, well, in the meantime, let, let, let's, uh, let's uh, extract profit. And so I think that's where the tech industry, certainly at the commanding heights, um, is going. And I, I'm wondering what happens um, to... The elites, I, I, I know, they're either lying or they're lying to themselves in a, the Sartrean bad faith sense, or they're just outright lying. It's the, the, the people who fascinate me and who I, I, I would like to have, I guess, uh, some degree of psychoanalytic insight into are those who, who are not at the elite level. Like there are, are young people, there are people who are entering tech. There, and I, I track this on Twitter. Twitter has become very useful, even in its degraded state. It's become useful to me to kind of get a sense of where uh, the mindset of the Californians are. And by Californians, I mean people in Silicon Valley, but people who want to be in Silicon Valley as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's like they're embracing this, this madness and I wonder if it's because they have nothing else to hold on to at this point um, and, and don't know where else to turn. And so the idea that AGI is coming and it's going to kill us, like, well, why are you excited? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you're wrong. You, yeah. you are wrong. That's not happening. But let's say it were happening. What, what are you excited about? And th this is what's puzzling me, um, not because I believe that we're rational creatures. That, that's a fallacy, obviously. I mean, we're, 
we have the ability to, you know, to ration out things, but that's not all we are, obviously. There's other things going on. Um, so it's not that. It's just I, I'm curious about where we are at this moment where the people who love technology, many of them, or a significant percentage of them, seem to be, in my view, going slowly mad. Yeah. Well, I suppose the 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 both sides of the um debate, whether it's the sort of utopian or the apocalyptic um sides of it, partake of of, of a very similar logic, which is theological. I mean, it's a mm. it's a secular religion, really. It's it's not surprising that the at the height of our most sort of instrumental rationality we and sort of biopolitical administration of society and sort of uh, alienated subjects that we all are. It's not surprising that, you know, the decline of organised religion also meets with what now appears to have taken its place, which is the sort of faith in a something that knows better than us and mm-hmm. and that we don't necessarily have control over. So it's at once a sort of hope, but also a fear. And yeah. it's it's, I suppose... In a weird way, this uh, apocalypticism is as comforting to people as the sort of utopian side of it, because mm. it sort of gives some sense of order that uh, that there is something that knows, there is some um, rationality that can be followed and eventually will lead to something. And I think that what people kind of respond to in that and and why you know it's, it's baffling. Why why do people fall for it? Why do people find it exciting? Um, it, it it sort of fills this 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 gap that I think is very noticeable in people's lives, and it's something to to believe in, isn't it? And mm. it's sad, really, because it's so it's so obvious. It's so obvious that yes. it's um, you know giving up your responsibility to a third party is very uh, relaxing, isn't it? Mm. And you know, that's for a lot of people, um, religion can fulfil that. Um, need and for other people it's it's something else but it's certainly a a deficit that a lot of people feel is filled by technology but i mean at at its height the people um the billionaires that we're talking about i mean they don't even hide the fact that that they believe that this is Mm. something godlike this is something that will take us to a to another dimension that will Mm -hmm. fulfill all our wildest dreams and i mean i uh I'm, i'm ashamed to say that i didn't know the depth of Nick Bostrom's racism yes. and idiocy, because I, I knew he was an idiot, but I I didn't <laughs> know that I didn't know he was an actual racist, and I I found that through looking into this yes. this horrible um, email that he wrote. So it doesn't surprise me that, that from somebody who says uh, racist comments about black people that he did in the nineties that he's now uh, his trajectory has taken the path that it has. I mean it's ludicrous you know it's it's just baffling and the kind of fantasies around um in the future we'll have this wonderful world where we have so much pleasure that you know we'll sprinkle it in our tea i mean what are you on man like what are you talking about and that was all in the the sort of early 2000s wasn't it when he was writing all of these um, letters from the future and stuff so these are serious people that people take seriously and you know Nick Bostrom and his ilk are invited everywhere, everywhere and they are the panels, they are the great men that we're supposed to listen to and they're mm. actual idiots. Yes. And it's that's terrifying. But we 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 place so much importance in these these men. 
And we still all have this like inferiority complex where it's like, oh yes, well they're they're white men of a certain age. Yeah. They've been to the best university universities. They must be clever. No, that's absolute rubbish. You know, there, and there's another aspect of this. I was talking with a friend um, who said, you know, Dwayne, one of the things you have to consider here is that the West is also in crisis. And by the West, you know, he did not mean all people who live, you know, in in Europe or the United States or what have you, or any whatever the West means, um, because people like John Gray are like, what are you on about? There, there is no West, it's just a collection of countries um, who pretend that they have a, a common heritage. But um, the rise of China is, in my view, has created also a bit of a nervous breakdown for the self-regard of a racist ideation. And it doesn't really matter. I, I know that for some people, this is controversial. They'll say that, well, you know, China's terrible or what have you. Um, um, I, I, I don't want to get into that. What I, wanted, I do want to get into is the fact that it exists as a power. And I do not believe that in the history of the West, um, with the exception of the rise of Japan, um, and this is much more significant than that, um, that there has been a rival power, technological, military, even in the terms of presenting a, um, a vision for the world, so to speak. And so it's curious to me that in addition to all the other factors we've talked about, and here I'm putting on my Marx and Engels hat, in addition to all the other factors we've talked about dialectically, right, that this, this madness is arising at a moment when there is another country that presents itself to the world um, you know, as a major power and as a major technological power. You, you don't hear about this on CNN, but China has its own space station that rivals the International Space Station. China, China has its own AI program that rivals the programs of the West. China has its own cloud platform. Yeah. All the things that Europe, for example, refuses to do because it follows the United States, China is doing. And so in addition to uh, the U.S.-based, because we're mostly talking about Americans here, the U.S.-based tech industry presenting itself as a bulwark against this supposed AGI threat, I think that they're also presenting themselves as a bulwark against, you know, this peril from the mm -hmm. East. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it would be, it behooves us, I think, to take into account the racist element of this, regardless sure. of what, what anyone thinks about the Chinese Communist Party. That is immaterial to the racist ideation, I believe, that underlies a lot of this. And it's quite serious. And I think it also helps us to understand why this category of men, this middle-aged, accustomed to being fated about white man, is freaking out. Um, my grandmother used to say, you know, white, white men will probably destroy the earth. And, and, and she, <laughs> I said, oh, grandma, what are you talking about? She says, no, if, if ever challenged, they would rather blow up the earth than yeah. share power. That's, yeah. what, that's, what my, that's what my grandmother said, mm -hmm. you know, and she said that when I was a little boy and I'm like, you know, I will say to her spirit now, of course you were right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you were always right. And you were mm -hmm. probably right about this too. And so I, 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 I will say that um, the reason why psychoanalysis now seems so vital to me mm. as um, a person who is not, of course, an expert in this field, but a person who respects the field and, and looks to those like like yourself and Vanessa and others, um, is because materialism alone is not is not enough. Like uh, I, I understand the factors, but 
there is a turn to a kind of it's difficult to describe but a, a, but i i would say a, a hysteria but mm -hmm. in, in 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 but i know that that has a, a specific sense in lacanian lacanian thought but you know in the general or the common the common sense of the word like a kind of hysteria that that's rising now in in elite circles and that's what that's what fascinates me not like there's people just kind of going about their business just saying well i'm just doing the best i can um i may be you know pressed by a lack of money or or um having to take care of my family and so forth but i'm not necessarily hysterical whereas people with billions and all of the wealth in the world i think i would sum this up by saying we have an elite class today that unlike previous elite classes seems to be the least stable and the least capable of enjoyment of, yeah. of any elite class, maybe in the history. I, I don't know. There probably have been other epochs in which elite classes, maybe in, at the end of the Western Roman Empire, maybe they were, you know, tugging at their togas and going, oh, it's all over. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but it's quite astounding that at this moment, you have this elite class of people who seem extraordinarily nervous. Um, yeah. e and even at the point where they seem to have defeated labor, yeah. um, they seem to be more nervous than ever before. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I like to um, put this in a phrase. You can call it instrumental masculinity. I mean, it's mm. it's it's sort of so Adornian, <laughs> and um, you know, it, it feeds into all of the the tropes of um, what happens when you try and take science to its nth degree, and then it, it turns against you. And the sort of dialectical process that that always um, brings about throughout history, and and all the atrocities that are associated with it, but but also to bring in the sort of psychoanalytic and Lacanian um, angle is there is this something about the masculine form of thought or the phallic form of thought that perpetuates this very strange um, sort of logic of this obviously expansionism but in in sort of um terms in relation to enjoyment is this this fantasy of like infinite um gain infinite gain that you can always recuperate something back you know this idea that there's something um that you can totalize and you can get your hands around and if only you can just um find the formula it will all come together and 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 you know that that's in a way in, in sort of psychoanalysis, we sort of, um, to, to say it very uh, roughly, you know, we think of phallic logic as a sort of cumulative logic that, that is um, totalizable and, and feminine logic of being this sort of untotalizable group. And so if you think of the, the sort of phallic logic that is clearly um, the foundation of, of this whole conversation and, and artificial intelligence, general artificial intelligence, it's very clear that um the the type of thinking that leads you to want to um exponentially improve humanity uh but at the same time exponentially um accrue wealth uh and colonize and grow and grow and grow is as we know a disastrous um mm -hmm. horrible cancerous uh, human trait that that we don't ever seem to be able to put a st to put a lid on, and you know to to characterize as you do these these sort of billionaire set as as being the sort of least happy 
um, set of people ever, it, you know, it's not surprising, is it? Because they've realised that actually having all of this stuff and and power and supposedly endless access to to people's um, livelihoods that they do doesn't make them very happy. And no. oh, I wonder why that is. You know. Yeah. It's strange that people still don't understand that however much you speed things up, however much money you have, however much resources you have, you're still a human being in a body that lives and dies. And you're not going to be that much different from human beings living thousands of years ago, actually, probably yes. a bit less healthy <laughs> you Perhaps, know, and, yeah. and less happy, probably. probably. The idea that all of these things are making you this you know, transhuman and, and, and superhuman, they're not. They're not. Yeah. And 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 this fantasy is just the, the male fantasy par excellence. The fantasy of wholeness and and you know if we want to get really psychoanalytic, the sort of eroticism of this, which is very clear, of the idea of being able to complete something. And and if we talk about it in very sort of abstract uh, sexual psycholytic terms, mm -hmm. the the kind of um, metaphor of the being able to stop the hole in the universe you know like the phallic yeah, yeah. wanting to just be that one man that fills the hole of the woman which is the universe you know and, and that logic is what what's going on here it's like we can do this guys we can we can you know we can get our big dicks and we can make this <laughs> this thing really go wild you know what's his name for sending that fucking awful rocket up into the into the universe the shape like a dick and it's just like could you be any more graphic this is literally what they're doing they're trying to fuck the universe and, um... bezos's rocket in particular is, is particularly phallic it's which is when i saw the the blue origin rocket i'm like oh are you kidding me it's just ridiculous. can't make this shit up you can't like, you can't <laughs> but but um but nature is so vast and um, and beyond us, and and you know the and the other thing I as we I guess ten minutes left. Um, so we talked about the masculineness uh, aspect of this, but it occurs to me that in previous ages, although they certainly surely were misogynists and and what have you, the group of men that I compare the current tech cohort to are the atomic physicists the Oppenheimers, the Zillards, and so forth, who contributed in one way or another to the creation of the atomic bomb. And um, uh, despite that, I, one could say crime, um, although they were promoting or rather pursuing something that seemed to be pure research to them, but also because of the war, you know, they had their own ideas about the urgency of it and the concern about, of course, the Nazis perhaps being on the same track. So that's a, a complicated and murky moral area to be in except for the dropping of the bombs of course that's pretty straightforward but um these men from that time period i i won't i don't want to engage in hagiography and say oh they were saints but if i were to talk to them about say the history of the roman empire i'm pretty confident that i could have a conversation or about art or about various other things i'm sure that i could have a conversation aside from their pursuit of atomic physics. These individuals, our modern cohort of elites, technical elites, seem to be so entirely narrow in their knowledge of the world. For example, there was a, a chap on Twitter who said that, oh, well, you know, um, having an English major is ridiculous because why would you major in the language that you speak? I mean, which is kind of <laughs> revealing his, his complete... Wow. So nitwittery, so to speak, <laughs> like, you're such an idiot. But... 
and yet, you know, you're getting, you're doing TED Talks and all this kind of thing. Mm. And so the degeneration, shall I say, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the breadth of knowledge, I'll put it that way, regardless of, of one's, you know, um, whatever failings, you know, the previous generations might have had, they had a broader range of knowledge about the world and how the world works. And, and even if you're a physicist, you respected the biologists or you respected artists, you respected mm -hmm. writers and so forth. So I, I'm curious about your thoughts about this, this narrowing of, of, uh, of their scope of thought. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's certainly true that um, we have witnessed a, a, a sort of general degeneration in the in our kind of um, all round intellectual mm. capabilities that, you know, because just on the level of um, the way that the universities work is that, you know, people can't, mm. um, there aren't, there isn't funding for the humanities and people mm. are encouraged to become specialists um, in, in, and not do transdisciplinary thinking. And more than anything, of course, STEM subjects are the subjects that get money. But yeah. but more importantly, it's not even just STEM. It's um, things that can be monetized and things that are economically viable. Can you can you have a job from it? So it's less and less possible to um, be sort of an all round intellectual. You know, mm. in in that sense, I see what you're saying about the the types of intellectuals that we were dealing with then, who were you know. Um, sort of at the top of society, as it were, making mm -hmm. these decisions. I suppose you could say at least they were people who kind of had a sort of more polymath. Yes. I don't know how to make that into a uh, polymathistic. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they they were more like Renaissance people yes. in the sense that they were across the sciences and the arts. And of course, I mean, can you can you imagine um, Bezos, for example, quoting from the Bhagavad Gita as Oppenheimer did? I mean, well, exactly. he probably no. doesn't even know what it is. Right? No, exactly. And and you know that the. the the sort of, um, I mean, we, we we shouldn't be too lauding of people who had right. lots of, because <laughs> there are many examples that, that prove otherwise. But none, nonetheless, you know, being being having a relationship between the arts and the sciences, which used to be the case, of course, you know, in antiquity there wasn't that that strong divide. Um, to be able to understand that human beings need to understand science, art, uh, maths, um, you know, music, and this was this is what we should aspire to do: is that all human beings should try and know as much as possible about all different fields and and that's something that we've definitely lost so in terms of of, of thinking about if we are going to have this concept of what the elite are um whether you think that's a good concept or a bad concept if you are going to have a concept of elite people who make decisions for society they should be people who have knowledge across all the fields in the arts in the sciences you know and and across all different cultures how are you going to be able to make good decisions and know what is good for humanity unless you understand it and scientists don't understand everything about humanity quite obviously <laughs> they don't and certainly technologists definitely don't absolutely and not. technologists are the people who make most of those important decisions now for us yeah. and and what is so crucial is that we make sure that as many people from you know, just normal people, everyday people. But if we're talking about people in uh, different disciplines, people from philosophy and art and psychoanalysis and history and, you know, all of the important things about hum humans need to be involved in AI. 
and they need to be actively taking taking part in in, in making it and and or stopping it, which is more preferable. So well, and this <laughs> is um, this is what people such as uh, uh, Timnet and others um, are trying to do. Um, um, there's a Logics magazine, for example. Um, I recommend people look at um, the Dare Institute, as I, I mentioned. There's other groups that um, are trying to uh, craft an alternative vision because you know complex societies need computation of some form. I mean, even the yeah. the early cyberneticists of the 1940s and 50s understood that there was some need to you know to navigate complexity, um, like Stafford Beer. That that was his. His idea, not control, which is what Norbert Wiener, cyberneticist, kept talking about, but navigation. That you know, complexity is unavoidable. So, but as human beings, we need to navigate it. And whether that's as hunter-gatherers, they were navigating, say, a rainforest, or they had to understand the complexity as best they could as the rainforest. They and they gathered a lot of a lot of um, uh, cross-generational knowledge of how things worked within their environment. Right? That's mm-hmm. navigating. That's a cybernetic process in the classic sense. And um, or Kubernetes, you know, the, the idea of 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 being the the, the helms the helms person, um, not the control, which is what uh, the tech industry is so obsessed with, to the point that they believe, thanks to our friend um, Bostrom, apparently, that uh, they can control the stars themselves. And mm. you know, nature has a way of humbling, you know, um, eventually, and. Um, uh, I, I do hope they try to to move to space because I, I think that space will will teach them all a, a, a lesson, a very harsh yeah. lesson, because um, it's not for the faint of heart. And without the Earth, that's the irony of the dream of moving to space, is that without the Earth, the, a movement to space is impossible. So if the Earth dies, yeah. it, you're you are also dead, and that's even in your spacecraft, your bones will just float forever. Yeah. Um, but I see that we're coming up on the two-minute mark, Vanessa, and I didn't want to. Uh, uh, and as uh, Isabel knows, I, 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 I know. <laughs> as Isabel knows, I'm not one to uh, to want to yammer on for for hours. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. Also, I know that you have a new podcast as well, and that you had Isabel on. So I want to definitely plug that in the beginning oh, yes. of the intro. Um, yes, Isabel was on the Film Conversations podcast. Um, she very kindly, Isabel very kindly uh, agreed to be on. And we talked about the film Ex Machina, um, which um, is prominently featured in Chapter 5 of the book, The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence. And um, that was a great conversation. And yeah, that was uh, cool. we, we learned a lot. And um, Dennis is still raving about... Uh, uh, about the book, uh, Isabel, oh, cool. so, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was such a nice conversation. Yeah, I really like yeah. the guys. They're really cool. Yes, they're, they're really, they're really good uh, dudes. And, um, I'm, I'm happy that, that it, it, it all came together and that we have such a nice time together. Yeah. Great. Yeah, no, it's great. And, um, I'm glad to hear you all talk. I love Isabel's psychedelic perspective and doing your material perspective on these machines because if I hadn't discovered you, I might be sucked into this like doom <laughs> theory. Like, what's going to happen? I'm like, wait, no, this makes sense. <laughs> this isn't job, that intelligent. Um, this but, is but, material reality. You know? That's right. And, and and you know, Vanessa, that's my job. I think. I mean, um, that's my my task. As I as I as I've told other people, I realized that a lot of a lot of people they, they don't know they're being lied to and they don't they don't know 
what's really what's up mm. I used to say and and I and since I do have a very strong idea of what's up um rather than just be silent as many of my colleagues are they're not saying anything mm. um and I, I just feel responsibility and, and and I'm just happy that in addition to that background knowledge that I I've, I've made some good friends who can also um give some other perspectives on this as well yeah, and I really appreciated it. I'm uh, I'm so glad that you do speak up because you know Absolutely. we're all like attached to these machines, you know, because <laughs> they're so part of our lives. But most of yes. us don't really understand them or have a background yes. in them, you know. But we're yes. like subjected to this, you know. Mm. So it's good to have like, yeah, a rational perspective. Being mm. like, wait a second, that's <laughs> so a minute. fast. <laughs> like, hold on, hold on. It might on. seem like magic, but it's not magic. <laughs> yeah, precisely, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I've been talking to Dekai lately about coming on the podcast. So hopefully I'll get him on soon. And that would be really fun to have you on with Dekai sometime as well. He's a Chinese AI specialist. Mm. Um, but he's just been hard to nail him down because mm -hmm. uh, he's been like talking to Congress and at the psychedelic science and he's just like running. Oh, all yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was doing these talks, but hopefully he'll be home soon and I'll be able to lock him down into a... He came to our Psychoanalysis Art in the Occult conference in Copenhagen in October uh, because he's uh, dating a friend of mine who was presenting. And yeah, it was just so lovely to have him there with his perspective on things. It was really great. So I, oh, I cool. want, him, oh, nice. want him on here sometime soon too. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for hosting, Vanessa and Dwayne. Yes. As ever, pleasure talking to you. Mm -hmm. yep, yeah, and here. I think too, Isabel, I think your point, you made two different points separately, but I think that they go together really well. Like one, this AI as God point, like takes them away from having responsibility because they're like, oh, it's out of control. It's this thing we yes. created and we can't help what happens. But that also keeps them in this position of power as being the ones that like are tied to this knowledge. So like mm -hmm. let's them be in both positions at once where Absolutely. they're like in the power position and the sub position at the same yeah. time. It's the classic high priest position, right? Totally. Where yeah. you are the, the conduit to yeah. the deity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but not responsible for its actions. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion between Dr. Isabel Miller and Dwayne Monroe on the psychoanalysis of AI doomerism. For more, visit previous episodes, Rendering Unconscious episode 239, where Isabel and Duane present at Morbid Anatomy Museum as part of our Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult series on Virilio's Lost Dimensions, the Psychic and the Technical, and From Success Comes Failure on the Dialectics of Cloud Computing. You can also check out episode 188 with an interview with Dwayne Monroe, cloud architect, Marxist tech analyst, internet polemicist on AI propaganda. And episodes 21 and 137 with Dr. Isabel Miller on AI, sex, culture, film, and the future 
and psychoanalysis and sex bots. Links to their social media can be found at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. And now the song, The Unconscious is a Simulacrum, from the new album, my latest collaboration with Pete Murphy, Indulgence, Not Abstinence. You can find this album at Pete Murphy's Bandcamp page, petemurphy.bandcamp.com, where all the music is name your price. So download and enjoy. Good things will come, waiting, often painting, and set to work. I have found a number 19 life-size inflatable doll dreams are notoriously his presiding muse the unconscious is a simulacrum engagements and usages that trigger the unconscious it is not our object in this section to describe the various processes genetics, psychology, and psychopathology of art, anthropology. She didn't know it at the time. Red, black, unconscious, psychological, and psychosomatic, addictive, installed. We can learn from that an hour. No, he's not there. opening of a major exhibition of the cut-up method by chance of this is the supernormal. We could be anyone we ever wanted. Some would say nothing in the intestines of the unknown. Identity meaning not to be underestimated says the light is on but these were special took on more demonic nightmares dead i assure you i'm not talking about theory this is a process which we meet again in the genesis of our dreams the psychic dissociation there are thus two types of artist, the one who 